The Academic Podcast Agency. Episode 3, A Forest for Future Generations. Hello and welcome to the People and Forest podcast. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to learn more about our relationships with forests, why forests matter to us, and how new ways of thinking about nature and rights could help us protect forests for present and future generations. I'm Dr Helen Dancer. I'm a senior lecturer in law and anthropology at the University of Sussex. And for the past few years, I have been researching relationships between people and forests in England and globally. In this podcast, I will be sharing with you some of the insights I have gained through my research on our relationships with forests, nature and rights over the past few years. In this episode, I'll be introducing you to some of the cultural legacies of England's ancient forests and new legal ways of thinking about how to ensure a healthy environment and the well-being of future generations. The Queen of the Forest The Nightwood Oak is the New Forest's most famous oak tree. Known as the Queen of the Forest, it has stood tall in the heart of the forest for an estimated 500 years. Ivy crawls up its deeply textured wide trunk, while the numerous high branches form a magnificent delicate and capillary-like crown. What is unusual about this tree is that until around 300 years ago, it had been pollarded, a traditional method of harvesting wood from a tree by regularly cutting back its branches, which preserves the tree while encouraging new growth. Nowadays, the tree is surrounded by a circular picket fence to keep out humans as well as browsing animals. There is a nearby picnic area and a car park a few metres away, providing easy access to what is one of the most popular visitor destinations within the New Forest. Without the fence to protect it, browsing animals and recreational pressure would undoubtedly pose a risk to the life of this centuries-old tree. A special place. The New Forest is often described as a special place, popular with locals and visitors alike, and is England's largest ancient woodland landscape. It has often been described as a mosaic of ancient woodland, heathland and wetland habitats. The landscape as it appears today is the product of both ecological processes and human actions, including successive phases of woodland clearance for agriculture and timber. It is a cultural landscape of ancient commoning practices, where ponies, cattle, pigs, donkeys and sheep owned by commoners graze freely on the open forest and play an important part in its biodiversity. The New Forest, along with the Forest of Dean, Epping Forest and other special ancient forests around the country, are remnants of a history of royal control over much of the English landscape and their importance for hunting and timber for the crown. It was established as a royal forest in around 1079 under the reign of William the Conqueror although commoning in the forest predates this. When you walk through the new forest, you can feel the contrast between the atmosphere of the ancient woodlands in the open forest 
and that of the planted enclosures. The ancient and ornamental woodlands, as they are known, have evolved through natural processes and are full of birdsong, dappled light and varied wildlife. By contrast, the planted enclosures are dark, quiet places. The history of the New Forest is often told from the perspective of commoners defending their rights to put grazing stock such as ponies, cattles and pigs on the open forest. Over the centuries, royal forests were important for hunting, as well as timber supply for shipbuilding and construction. Although pre-existing common rights were not eliminated, over the centuries laws regulating the enclosure of large areas for timber plantation restricted the exercise of common rights. Traditional commoning practices continue to this day. In the autumn, pigs are let onto the forest for a period of time known as the panage season, when they eat the fallen acorns. Ponies and cattle can be seen year-round. Ponies roam the forest in groups and pass their knowledge of where to find the natural foods of the forest, such as gorse and holly, water and shelter, from one generation to the next. The main human intervention happens during what is known as the drifts in the autumn, when ponies are rounded up by the local adjuster, who has expert knowledge of the stock in their area of the forest, and is assisted by experienced commoners to check on their welfare. During this process, the ponies' tails are trimmed in a particular way to show that they have been checked and many have reflective collars fitted to reduce the risk of being hit by vehicles if they roam onto the roads at night. Commoning traditions have been handed from one generation to the next over the centuries. But these and other forest traditions are now facing new challenges and shifting priorities over how the new forest and other public forests are governed, and for whom. In recent decades, the emphasis has shifted increasingly towards recreation. But the ongoing need to protect the forest's cultural heritage and biodiversity now has to be managed against a backdrop of a growing local population, second home ownership and demand for affordable housing, as well as increasing visitor numbers. These social and economic changes have brought new challenges in managing relationships between people and the forest. Shared values. I began my research on human forest relationships in 2017, in what was also the 800th anniversary of the Charter of the Forest. In contrast to the Magna Carta, which protected the rights of barons, the Charter of the Forest re-established the rights of free men to access royal forests. As well as an opportunity to commemorate an important moment in English history, the 800th anniversary of the Charter was also an important symbolic moment for the power of public consciousness on how we value forests. It came in the wake of an abandoned proposal by the UK government to privatise the entire public forest estate, which had led to public outcry and a subsequent independent consultation on the future of English woodlands. The consultation, chaired by the Bishop of Liverpool, advocated the development of a new woodland culture, the public backlash to the proposed sell-off was a time of political awakening to the importance of trees, woods and forests to the general public. The proposed sell-off also demonstrated 
how little legal protection there is for forests and woodlands at present. In 2015, a large group of 70 UK organisations led by the Woodland Trust sought to commemorate the 1217 Charter of the Forest by reimagining a charter for the 21st century. Over 60,000 tree stories were collected from people around the country, which together helped to define our publicly held shared values towards trees and woods and set out a vision for the future. The 10 principles of the Charter for Trees, Woods and People highlight the importance of protecting the ecology of trees and woods and the opportunities they offer for human inspiration, innovation and well-being for present and future generations. At the head of the Charter, the spirit of these ten principles is captured in the following words by poet Harriet Fraser. Natural treasures, in roots, wood and leaves, for beauty, for use, the air that we breathe. Imagine a wood starts with one small seed. We're stronger together, people and trees. Our human footprint. Over the centuries, the way we think about public forests has changed. Recreation and conservation have become increasingly significant. Humans have long been part of complex and interdependent forest ecosystems. But there is no doubt that many modern-day recreational uses of forests have put the ecology under pressure. This was brought into sharp relief during the COVID-19 pandemic, when our freedom to meet indoors was curtailed and people flocked to natural places around the country to connect with nature and each other. Whether as locals or visitors, everyone who sets foot in a forest for recreation leaves some kind of footprint. During my research in the new forest before the pandemic, I heard many concerns expressed about human disturbance to forest ecology. For example, in spring and summer, dogs allowed to roam off the lead could be a risk to ground-nesting birds. Pressure of visitor numbers in popular parts of the forest meant parking on the verges caused damage to rare plants in a site of special scientific interest. Some visitors, excited at the sight of commoners' ponies, were feeding them, which put the ponies at risk of illness, traffic accidents and behaviour change. Barbecues in tinder-dry parts of the forest posed a fire risk. In autumn, wildlife photographers keen to get the perfect image of a majestic new forest stag could become a disturbance to deer during the rutting season while rare, red-listed species of fungi were being illegally picked to extinction for commercial purposes. There were year-round risks to animals and plant life caused by littering, cycling at night and off-tracks, and traffic accidents involving animals on the forest roads. The exceptional ecology of the new forest ponds and rivers was also at risk from pollution and recreational pressures. How do we protect landscapes? Partly in response to these challenges, and in recognition of the forest's importance as a biodiverse cultural landscape, in 2005 the New Forest became a national park. As with many governance decisions in the history of the New Forest, the national park designation at that time was welcomed by some and criticised by others. The main legal benefit for the environment was the high level of planning control that comes with designation of a national park, 
However, many local people in the New Forest were concerned that the designation would make matters worse by encouraging even more recreational pressures. All national parks in the UK are governed in accordance with two statutory purposes and a duty to consider the economic and social well-being of the community. Since 1949, the dual purposes of a national park have been to conserve and enhance the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage and to promote opportunities for the understanding and enjoyment of the special qualities of the area by the public. These two purposes can often come into conflict. So according to a principle known as the Sanford Principle, set out in the 1995 Environment Act, where it appears that there is a conflict between the two purposes, greater weight should be attached to the purpose of conserving and enhancing the natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage of the area than to the second recreational purpose. While this may be the theory, in areas of pressure on the environment such as the New Forest, the balance between these two purposes is hard to manage in practice. In 2019, an independent panel reviewing the nation's protected landscapes and chaired by Julian Glover made a series of recommendations which included a proposed revision of the two purposes of national parks. The panel's recommendations on the two purposes placed emphasis on nature recovery and biodiversity, as well as introducing the concept of natural capital alongside cultural heritage. As to the second purpose, the panel emphasised the importance of social inclusion, connecting all parts of society with these special places, as well as the nation's health and well-being. In response, the government has largely accepted these recommendations, reaffirming the Sanford principle on how to navigate between the two purposes, with new explicit mention of biodiversity and driving nature recovery. However, somewhat in contrast to the language of tree stories and principles in the Charter for Trees, Woods and People, the government's response to the Landscapes Review says that the principle of natural capital should be included to capture, quotes, the societal value of nature in our protected landscapes and encompass a broader range of ecosystem services, end of quote. How do we live these shared values in practice? Policy concepts such as levelling up, nature recovery networks and natural capital are driving current political agendas for change. But how can we live shared values towards our relationship with forests in practice? It feels like something more is needed. During my fieldwork interviews in the New Forest, I learned that before the forest became a national park, a voluntary body known as the New Forest Committee developed a local principle which became known as the Forest First Principle. The core of the principle was that, quote, the special qualities and unique character of the forest must be conserved for their intrinsic value and for the enjoyment of present and future generations, end quote. This principle recognised that the needs and future of people and the forests that they lived in and visited were intertwined and depended on both a healthy local economy and a healthy ecosystem. We can also see the spirit of the Forest First Principle's concern for the intrinsic value of forests and generational equity in new emergent rights-based language on future generations and a healthy environment. In 2015, the Government of Wales passed the Wellbeing of Future Generations Wales Act. Central to this Act is a well-being duty, 
which requires all public bodies to act according to the Sustainable Development Principle, which ensures that the needs of the present are met without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And this principle is wide-ranging, encompassing not only environmental decision-making, but all aspects of social, economic and cultural life. Wales's approach to long-term thinking has caught the attention of governments elsewhere. And in 2021, a private member's bill for the well-being of future generations was introduced in the House of Lords. Time will tell whether it will pass into law to provide a similar wide-ranging framework for sustainable development in the UK. Meanwhile, in July 2022, at a global level, the principle of a human right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment was declared a universal human right by the UN General Assembly in a near-unanimous vote of support. And at the 2022 COP15 summit in Montreal, Governments adopted a historic global biodiversity framework that for the first time included the rights of nature. It has taken over 50 years since the birth of the modern environmental movement for humanity to reach this point and we do not have the luxury of 50 years to make the changes that are needed in the face of the climate and biodiversity crises. But it seems that we are now at a moment of public as well as political awakening and the beginnings of a paradigm shift in human-Earth relationships. Feeling part of our forests means both respecting them and feeling at home in them, not treating forests as other. But in the spirit of the Andean indigenous concept of sumac corse or buen vivir that underpins the rights of nature enshrined in Ecuador's constitution, we must learn to live well. Why must we do this? I leave you here with the words of the Brazilian environmentalist and social activist Chico Mendes, whose assassination in 1988 brought global attention to the destruction of tropical rainforests. At first, I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees. Then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realise I'm fighting for humanity. Thank you very much for listening. For recommended reading on the subjects covered in this episode, please visit the show notes on your podcast player. This podcast episode was written and presented by myself, Helen Dancer produced by Will Hood of the Academic Podcast Agency, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the University of Sussex, with poetry by Harriet Fraser and sound archive from New Forest Sounds.